So come on, cowboys and cowgirls, reach for the star, reach for Marshall. The whole world has lost its mind. But forget about what's happening in 2020. Let's go back to 1986 and talk about a film where everyone can't stop chugging beer and the drinking age is just six years old. We're still up all night and this episode we watched Sour Grapes. Hello everybody and welcome to USA Up All Night with me, Aranda. Hi, I'm Gilbert Godfrey, the comedian in the cupboard. For you, I stay up all night. In this movie, you'll see two of your favorite stars. Now, if you drink enough beer, you'll start seeing more of your favorite stars. Stay with me on USA. Up all night. Oh, Rob, it's episode eight of Still Up All Night, the podcast that celebrates the films of USA's Up All Night series. I'm Travis Yates, joined by co-host Rob Cady. And Rob, I'm in a good mood coming off the heels of a nice social media interaction with Rhonda Shear, And it really got me nostalgic, thinking not just about the movies we love from the series, but the antics of Rhonda and Gilbert and how they could just transport you to another place often mercifully when caught in the throes of teen angst. I know when I would go through a breakup or just general teenage malaise, Rhonda and Gilbert were always there for me on Friday and Saturday night. It's a long opening monologue, I know, but I think it's important to continue to pay homage to the two amazing hosts of the show. And since the Beach Boys never wrote Help Me Gilbert, I went with the other song. Rob, (laughs) how are you and do you feel the same about our hosts as I do? I'm well, and what in my experience, I, I really didn't watch a ton with Gilbert on. So I, I, Rhonda is really the where the vast majority of my memories come from. So I have a yeah a definite fondness for for her and and her antics on the show. But yeah, Gilbert was a much lesser component for myself. Well, a fun fact about me, I wrote for an entertainment website for several years doing film reviews, and as a film professor, I would approach each review not simply as, you know, this is what's good and this is what's bad about the film, but I really dug in and researched the films, discussed some finer points of filmmaking, and I tried to teach my readers a bit with each film that I would write about. So several years and hundred reviews later, I decided to compile all these short film essays into a book, and I titled it A Latchkey Kid's Take on Modern Cinema because I grew up a latchkey kid, and I grew up in video stores and in front of USA Up All Night. So when it came to the, t- to the dedication of the book, I simply write for Rhonda and Gilbert. And earlier this month, I was just feeling nostalgic. I posted uh, on our Twitter page, and the reasoning behind it a picture of the dedication page and i got a thoughtful reply and a heart emoticon from Rhonda. so thank you Rhonda, for the reply and for all those nights that you took us uh out of uh, took all our troubled minds off the the world of teenagehood absolutely and and i'm i'm ashamed to admit i'm only at this point halfway through your book it's 
it's gotten uh, buried on the my nightstand and I have to get my butt back to it. That's that's okay. It's it's a lengthy book. Uh, it's it's rather thick, and you know, I, I I it makes for I think good bathroom reading because it, you know, <laughs> movie by movie, you can squeeze in a movie with every trip to the bathroom. So, um, you can find it on Amazon. A Latchkey Kids take on modern cinema. Cheap plug there for for me. Pick yourself up a copy and and leave it on your uh, leave it on the the tank of your toilet. Leave me on your yeah, toilet, would you? Yeah, even beside the bed, it's you know one quick chapter before I. I pass out in the night, so. There we go. Um, okay, so, Rob, we've got a quirky little movie <laughs> this episode, Sour Grapes, um, a.k.a. Happy Hour. Um, so this is from Four Square Productions, the uh, production company and folks that brought us the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes series. And TMS Pictures, which has Meatballs 3 on its filmography. So you know we are in <laughs> for a treat. And it has Rich Little, Jamie Farr, and Tawny Katane, and a theme song from Devo. What could go wrong here, right, Rob? Exactly. Although, I, I will say, you know, up front, I'm just get this out of the way. I was, was disappointed that the Devo song wasn't significantly more on the nose relative to all the other movies we've watched so far it wasn't yeah this this might have been a grab at devo uh, just in general because of the mid 80s uh we'll we'll talk about that in a bit and we'll get we'll get into the meat of the movie here but first let's talk about some notes on sour grapes the film was released in theaters in may of 1987 but it was actually released on video in the uk in december of 1986 under the name of Happy Hour. So, Rob, uh, you and I had talked to earlier about having some trouble initially finding this movie because of the two names, and this is why. So I'm not sure the reasoning behind the name change, except for maybe Europeans have more of an affinity for wine, and perhaps they didn't like the name Sour Grapes. Are you, are you buying that one? Not really. I mean, there, there, and I'm sure you noted during the viewing, there are two distinct call-outs to the title of the movie yes. uh, as Sour Grapes Within. I mean, that's the only reason I can think about it. And maybe Happy Hour isn't a thing in the UK. Um, you know, it doesn't carry the same significance it does here in the US, so... I don't, I don't. That just all confuses me well, as to. And it was actually the reverse. It was. It was. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean. That's right. why I get so confused. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I couldn't find a definitive answer for the name change, but uh, uh, that's that's at least we know kind of the rationale as to yeah. why there are two names. We just don't know why those two different names were chosen. Uh, so, Sour Grapes originally aired on USA Up All Night as the second film of the night on October sixth, nineteen eighty nine. And Rob, it would play eleven more times before between its debut and September twenty fourth, nineteen ninety three, when it played for the last time. So twelve total appearances. I think that might be a still up all night record so far. Oh, I thought we had one that that topped that. We, we'll have to go back and look at the archives yeah. for, for a year end show, perhaps. But uh, it, it's up there in the running for sure. Absolutely, and again, it, it shocks me then that I never saw it. Yeah, likewise. No, yeah, no part of it looked familiar to me. The you know the image on the the uh, the poster or the VHS, the you know any scene, none of it had any callback to. 
I had more of a memory of it in reading the, the short description as we were selecting this episode's film than I did when I was watching it thinking, oh yeah, I remember that. I, I didn't have any of those moments. But I, yeah, exactly. I felt like I remembered it, but then I, but then watching it, I, I had no memory of it. So uh, this is the brainchild of John DeBello. And when I say brainchild, I mean written, produced, and directed by. Uh, DeBello <laughs> is, is, as I mentioned, best known for bringing us the entire Attack of the Killer Tomatoes franchise. And this is actually one of the few non-tomato films on his filmography, the other being a Lorenzo Lamas vehicle, Black Dawn. So if you're... If you're a big John DeBello fan and want to do a deep dive there, there's Black Dawn out there with Lorenzo Lamas. Which I actually think I've seen that one. Yeah. Have you seen any of the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes movies? Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you, you have to. I think it's a required viewing at film school um, that, that you sit down at some point and watch those uh, to, to begin to learn the art of parody. Yes. <laughs> All right, so let's dive into this this kind of quirky movie. You really have to follow the exposition in the title sequence to get the full picture of what's happening in the film. Uh, it, it flies by quick to the to the uh, tune of Devo, so that's good. But childhood friends and later chemist colleagues at Marshall Industries, Blake Teagarden and Meredith Casey, are working on behalf of Marshall Industries to find a way to make sea-based food like seaweed and plankton taste good so they could feed the world uh, that's the big project that they're working on and they accidentally discover a formula that works on beer and Marshall Industries just happens to also be in the brewery business um, so for some reason Blake but not Meredith gets promoted to the head of research at Marshall Industries probably because of the uh, misogynistic 80s um, you know <laughs> He buys a big house, gets all the accolades. Meanwhile, apparently Meredith, for some reason, is left out in the cold in this deal, and Blake doesn't really care, just moves on without her. Um, what you, would you make of this opening sequence here that packed in? You know, the other films we watched, normally you get about 45 minutes of exposition. We get about 45 minutes packed into a, a, a quick two-minute sequence here. Yeah, I was, exactly as you said, I was just shocked at you know, how much they packed in. And I I wasn't honestly paying that much attention. And then when it kicked off, I said, you know, wait a second, <laughs> what has happened? You know, I had to do a rewind to catch a couple of the, the key points that were being made. And, uh, I, you know, that just you know, sort of set the tone for the goofiness of this movie. It, it, it feels to me like there was enough story crammed in this where you could have made a trilogy out of it. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, it started with, uh, you know, a bunch of pictures of, of young kids playing with uh, microscopes and other things. And I'm like, oh, uh, what is going to, what is, what is this all about? And then eventually, I don't know if you caught, cause I had to do some rewinds too, to, to, <laughs> to make sense of that whole sequence. And I don't know if you caught, but there's a lot of, uh, they do it with, um, you know, headlines uh, out mm -hmm. of papers to kind of explain what just happened. And one of the, a story that keeps popping up in, in underneath the headline that's in no way related to the film is some sort of film review about the 1980 film Plenty, starring Meryl Streep, about a young English woman spending 20 years to make a life for herself around post-World War II England. 
<laughs> I missed that. <laughs> I, I couldn't. I had to pause it and read the whole review, and then I had to look up the film, and then I had to try to find a connection, and I, I just couldn't find it. So I don't know if it just— Is it a real film? It's a real film. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, so I, I, like I said, I, I never did find the connection between filmmaker and that film, which is, maybe, uh, uh DeBello is just a huge fan. <laughs> maybe. I mean, for the, the creator of attack of the killer tomatoes, you wouldn't think post-world war two, um, England <laughs> would be his specialty, but maybe, you know, it's hard telling, but that's a fun yeah. fact about that film. If you, if you ever do stop and pause it, those are the, that's the review you're going to keep finding over and over. Okay, so Blake uh, Teagarden, our protagonist, is played by Richard Gilliland. He's a veteran TV actor who at this time was best known probably for his role in Airplane 2. He later had a 14-episode run on Designing Women. Kind of an odd choice here, Rob, I thought. I mean, I could see Steve Gutenberg. How about Richard Dean Anderson? Maybe Scott Bakula? But Gilliland just doesn't jump off the screen here as the leading man in a film that appeared to have a pretty sizable budget. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think he did a, a, a perfectly fine job and I had no real issues, um, you know, because really we don't spend all that much time with our main character. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I have to agree with that point that, you know, there are certainly other actors that would have brought, I guess, a little more attention to this movie and and maybe elevated it slightly. Yeah, I know they were going for kind of an unassuming nerdy scientist type, but again, that's why I mentioned like Scott Bakula, who would have been perfect from his, you know, days on TV as a scientist in Quantum Leap. So yeah, um, again, just an interesting role uh, choice I thought there for casting that didn't really work for me. But uh, then I love the scene where we meet Meredith after she splits from her partnership <laughs> with Blake. It's just hilarious. And it's, you know, you can tell this was written by a man, you know, uh, her kitchen is just completely disheveled. There's stuff scattered everywhere. A picture on the wall is like slanted at an angle, like, it, like it was bumped into and, and, and knocked ajar. And she's just so distraught. She can't even keep the pictures on her wall straight. Um, yeah, yeah. just living in squalor yes. in, in a place that's about the size of a closet. Yeah, <laughs> peanut butter jars with the lids propped open. She's just dipping her fingers in it. She can't even cook a TV dinner, right? Um, so it, that was, a, I thought, a funny scene to kind of, well, we have to establish that Meredith has, you know, has is in a state of depression. Let's just throw her in a kitchen that's completely, <laughs> completely a mess. That'll do it. And have her fail at making dinner. <laughs> right, right. Um, so we go inside the strange world of Marshall Industries that we never really get a full picture of what this place is, except that it's your, you know, it's your, it's like every eighties, uh, uh, in industry trope thrown into one. It's like yeah. it's a brewery and it's a, you know, a research facility and it's this, um, we meet toy line and it's yeah yeah we meet Blake's colleague in the research department Hancock who's played by Eddie Deason, such a recognizable that guy who was in that thing. I mean, he was, oh, yeah. he was Eugene in Greece and Greece too. He was Malvin in war games. Here he's this wacky inventor pitching ideas like solar pencils, electric forks, polyester covered poker chips, such the casting here was spot on. Well, I mean, even beyond that, just if, if you haven't seen any of the movies he's in, you certainly know his voice, you know, he's done so much cartoon voice acting and yeah, just, uh, I, He's such a just a, a goofy human being. I, I love him, and and he always, you know, <laughs> I guess uh, lights up every movie he's in. He does. He really does. You know, I was amazed in looking at his filmography that he was never in any of the Revenge of the Nerds movies. 
which <sighs> custom made for this guy. Man, no kidding. That's that is surprising. I I thought he would have snuck his way into one yeah, of them. Not a, not a single one. So surprising. Um, we also meet Jack Marshall, the man behind Marshall Industries, and of course, um, you know, classic antagonist here. He's the type of guy that starts a conversation with you and then stops listening, can't be bothered to even carry carry on the conversation. A real blowhard, a perfect villain. He's played by James Newell, a veteran TV actor. Rob, did it look and sound to you like all of his lines were ADR'd? <laughs> it did. I don't know if the, if they had the B sound crew that day on all of his scenes, but it was it was it was distracting. Yeah, and and to be the only character that you know that sort of felt that way was yeah particularly odd to myself. And he sounds like actor John O'Hurley, who was best known as Jay Peterman in Seinfeld. So that kept throwing me <laughs> off too, because I'm like, is John O'Hurley somehow connected to this movie and doing the voice of Jim Newell? What's going on here? Yeah, and he's an actor I didn't recognize at all. Um, you know, he's got a, a reasonable filmography, but uh, yeah, you know, not... or TV, TV film, you know, ography. But yeah, I, I didn't recognize him. Yeah, not quite status of that guy who was in that thing. Didn't, didn't yeah, immediately yeah. recognize him either. Um, you know, this movie has, uh, which doesn't surprise me, considering the makers of, of the Killer Tomatoes are behind it, but it, it's got a tad <laughs> bit of parody, you know, not to the degree of DeBello's work there with the Killer Tomatoes, maybe more like the, you know, our last episode, Return to Horror High. It's done in subtle ways, like when Mr. Marshall holds a department meeting and he asks, what's going on with in toys, Mr. Tinker? <laughs> Yeah. You know, so the head of the toy department is Tinker, Tinker Toys, over the stuff, over the top, top stuff like that. You know, poking fun at their own attempts at comedy. Yeah, but but even as he uh, attempts to respond, he's instantly shut down, and they move on to another topic. Right. So yeah, it's like as, as I indicated earlier, I just found this to be a, a really goofy movie in the way it, it just dealt with everything. You know, it. Um, I, and I have to go back to saying that they tried to cram so much like world building into this yet did it in such quick ways or, or kind of tucked in the background ways that it, it made me want to see more of that part of the movie. And I was disappointed that they weren't leaning into more of that because that's where I found a lot of the humor of, from the movie. Yeah, it is. It almost feels at times like two different films and you're right. A lot of, I was embarrassed Rob, and I'll admit it now, of how many times I had to go back to kind of catch up as, okay, what did I miss? When did, you know, uh, which like Mr. X, rich little, we'll get to him in a minute, but I'm like, okay, wait, where did we meet him? Did we first meet him here? Yes, we did. Okay. But I had to go back because there was just so much happening. Like you said, so much world building that you, you can't always tell the players without the program. Well, particularly too, as the, the, um, you know, the additive, that they're using the beer, you, you quickly realize that it's, it makes it addictive and, and the impact this then has on society <laughs> as everyone starts drinking beer all the time. And those were the moments that I, I really appreciated when they threw in some sort of you know, exposition on the radio, yes. uh, like, you know, the, the drinking age has been lowered to six, <laughs> you know, and then you're just watching people drinking and driving and getting into constant accidents and 
yeah, that that was all the stuff I really I really enjoyed with no real concern either. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I made an allusion to 2020 and how things are so crazy now, and uh, you know it's kind of like that's happening in this movie, but yet you know it's like where are the adults in the room because <laughs> they're just you know people are getting out of their cars and cans are just falling out and and okay that's just normal now that's the new norm. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, yeah, so so Marshall Industries have have two vials of this formula that you just mentioned that makes this you know beer so addictive, and Meredith steals the second vial. Um, Blake had both of them at Marshall Industry, and Meredith before she made her gr- less than graceful exit that we don't really see, which uh, that's a part they could have gone into as well that they just skipped right over. So she takes this second vial and takes it to a rival brewery, Lakeside Brewery. And it sounds like Lakeside is another like uh, Marshall Industries type that has their hands in all sorts of things. And it seems like a, maybe a, a, a higher class instead of, you know, bothering to try to make solar pencils. They're, they're making, you know, more, more finer, refined things. But they do have a, a beer called El Macho. <laughs> so they, a, lot of sta- the a lot of statements here, too, on, on uh, uh, you know what it is to be a man in society. So they, they've got El Macho beer and um, Lakeside and Meredith, they make a deal with this man of mystery. He goes by many names. He's credited as Mr. X uh, in the film. He's played by comedian Rich Little. So a, a mid eighties kind of uh, interesting appearance here in the movie. They agree to pay him $5 million to acquire the vial um, from Marshall. And so the battle is on. We've got two two mega companies vying for the same formula to make their beer irresistible to everyone. So this is the crux of the narrative, essentially. So, it's, well, uh, I loved how too there was there was no explanation as to why the formula could not be repeated, considering the two people involved in its creation <laughs> were the ones who had the vials. Yeah, they 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 referenced it at one point, and it's again, it's in the exposition that if you blink and miss it, they accidentally spill. They're trying, they they're using a hamster, and they're trying this the formula on all types of different foods, and the hamster doesn't want to touch it. And then they spill some beer, and then they leave the room, and when they come back, the hamster has escaped through the cage, chewed through the beer can, and drank the beer and was all passed out, which is really funny seeing it just slung hanging over the can drunk. Um, so for whatever reason, the formula and the beer worked, but they couldn't get the formula to work on any other food. So that's as far as we get is this small exposition. And then later, like Blake references, I, we found it by accident with the beer. I know I can make it work on something else, but that's it. They don't, they don't continue to let them work on it. So here it is. So we're, so we're left with, yeah, these two individual vials and, and now you have two different breweries, each hiring wildly different <laughs> private detectives to go obtain, obtain or destroy the other vial. Yes. So I, the, we'll talk about the differences here in a minute, but we won't see Meredith again for a while after this scene where they hire, hire, uh, Mr. X, um, Another interesting uh, choice here. She's played by Deborah Gates, and we won't see her around in Hollywood much either after this film. She has just seven credits to her name on IMDb, and this is the biggest role she would have. She has a theater background, and she's done a lot of theatrical work, so Hollywood was kind of just a temporary stop for her. The The film introduces uh, Deborah Gates, so this was kind of her debut and... <laughs> 
kind of a swan song as well. Uh, we wouldn't see much of her after that. What did you think of, of Deborah Gates' performance in this? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I thought she was fine considering considering the movie and the uh, the roles. I guess at the time, I I didn't see a reason why she had such a short, you know, career. Yeah, I didn't either. I thought she was fine in this, and uh, you almost feel like was the her, her role maybe smaller at first, and then maybe got expanded as they made some some changes to the script or something because the way she's introduced and then disappeared and then came back and plays a major role towards the end, which we'll talk about in a minute. It just, that seemed kind of odd that you see such a major character disappear for almost the whole movie. Well, I, I, I wonder too, if, if her role may have been different, you know, cause it, it seemed, you know, and it's, it's sort of a part of the, the movie <clears throat> strange that, that Blake ends up marrying, you know, the, the cheerleader mm-hmm. and, you know, they sort of have a couple scenes where you, you know, uh, get the opinion that he and, you know, Meredith were, should have been together or were meant to be together, or at least maybe she saw it that way. Yeah, in the exposition, when they're flying through all the information, there is a, a, a wedding photo. I don't know if you caught it. And in the photo, uh, Meredith is standing up on the groom's side. So he was, she, she was so close to Blake that he asked her to be... Uh, a groomsman essentially and she's just staring off with disgust in the wedding photo it's great (laughs) so yeah clearly disapproval there and and also yeah i thought that that would be something they were going to explore we'll talk about uh blake's wife kathy here in a bit and and they kind of she skirted along being a villain but they never really let her go full-on villain so yeah i don't know if you had uh, it, the Bellow just couldn't decide what he wanted to do here with the ladies, and, and um, so he kind of was non-committal to both, and then finally decided in the end. Um, so, okay, so you mentioned the kind of two different <laughs> styles of the company. Um, you know, Lakeside <laughs> hires this international man of mystery. Marshall goes in the opposite direction, hires a, ga- a guy named Crummy Fred. Um, <laughs> uh, he's a man of the people, all right? We're introduced to him. Uh, as a BB gun wielding maniac who enjoys shooting women in the butt while they're playing beach volleyball. Um, Just a class act of a guy. And then doesn't he uh, drive over a kid's ball? Yes. A kid's running after his ball in the street and uh, crummy Fred speeds up to, uh, to hit the ball and, and almost run over the kid. Crummy Fred is played by Jamie Farr, better known as Max Klinger from MASH. And uh, Farr just plays Fred over the top here. I really enjoyed the way he played this character. What did you think of Jamie Farr as the scumbag for hire in this movie? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he was, you know, he and I think Rich Little were sort of the two highlights. Just, I I was blown away each time Rich Little came on because, you know, you're used to seeing him in, in different types of roles. And he was, as you said, sort of the international man of mystery. So it just was odd each time he came on uh, the screen. But then Jamie Farr playing Crummy Fred, it was like he just oozed Crummy, the whole, you know, in the whole movie. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, a poignant statement on Suburbia when, uh, you know, that scene you mentioned with um, Fred almost running over the, the kid and, and running over the ball there. He's on his way to his house, but he pulls into the wrong driveway, and when his garage door opener won't open his door, he just crashes through it. Uh, and it, it, through his neighbor's door, when the owner comes out and expl- ex- you know exclaims, "What have you done?" Fred responds, "All these houses look the same." 
And it's just like you got to find these little nuggets of, uh, you know, statements of capitalism and suburbia and, yeah. and all sorts of things. If, if you, you know, if you believe that it's there, uh, if DeBellos was really trying to sneak those in there. But I mean, why else would a line like that be in there? Yeah, yeah. And, and the, you know, the whole movie is peppered with little <laughs> tiny moments like that. So next we meet Fred's secretary, Misty Roberts, and it's Tawny Katane, and she looks like she just ran over from the set of the latest Whitesnake video. Uh, she certainly <laughs> had a look in the 80s, didn't she? She was, And she wasn't going to deviate from that look at all. Leather jacket, white mesh gloves, high heel boots. I mean, she, she, she just looked gorgeous. Tawny Katane, right? Yeah. It, it, yeah, there was no mistaking. Yeah, you could just see her leaving this movie and going straight to the Whitesnake video set and yeah. So this I, I uh, enjoyed her character too. I, I can't think back to to having seen her in many roles uh, growing up. You know, obviously the the White Snake video is the one that stands out the most. But uh, I enjoyed her character in this too. Yeah, she was a comic relief. She ends up being, and I didn't realize she was going to be in for such a role, uh, such a large role yeah. in the movie. But it just seems like as the movie went on, I don't know if she just grew on the. <laughs> on the the bellows or if she was always slated for such a large role and it's weird later when she's dressed and she's got a hat on she's got a gina davis thing going on i mean i kind of did a double take to say did gina davis just sneak into this movie so (laughs) i mean just an interesting when she wasn't dressed up as like the sexy vixen she yeah yeah she with that with that orange hair uh had a real gina davis look going which is perfect for the 80s so absolutely so the, the movie, I thought, Rob, had a little bit of an idiocracy vibe to it, too. There was that golf scene. There's a lot of golfing in this movie for some reason. And I feel like it was just DeBello's trying to capture the, you know, get on the, the Caddyshack uh, bandwagon here. But the golf scene where uh, Blake and his, his buddy are golfing and they hit a ball into into this threesome of guys. And they make one of them spills their spills their beer, and the other one falls over. But they're just they're caricatures of what you'd think civilized golfers would be in a golf course. They're laughing at each other when this happens, pushing each other over. But then you look around lately in current society, and it's par for the course. Pun totally intended, <laughs> right? Is this scene a good analogy for kind of the over the top public behavior that we now see so often today? Well, you know, and that carries, you know, it's, you know, essentially throughout the movie and in other scenes. And obviously at that point, it's attributed to everyone being hammered uh, because of their addiction to Marshall beer. But, yeah, there's there's definitely an element of that in there. So we mentioned earlier that, um, you know, Blake married somebody from the, the college that Blake and Meredith were at, Kathy. And she was, Kathy Simmons is, was her, her maiden name. I know that because in the quick flash of exposition, it says, for whatever reason, you know, a, a researcher yeah. <laughs> getting married was in the paper, but it said, you know, um, Tea Garden to marry Kathy Simmons. And um, she's, I couldn't figure out what direction they were going with her. She seemed at first to be more of a villain. And it's interesting. So the film is set in Denver. And when we see Kathy for the second time, she's wearing a Seattle Seahawks jersey, complete with the NFL Shield logo on the side. So I can't believe they paid for the rights to have this. <laughs> um, and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, they're in Denver. Now, I don't know if you remember, Rob, but in 1986, when the movie was being produced, the Seahawks played in the AFC West, and they were division rivals of the Broncos. 
So I don't, oh. you know, is DeBello's going so deep into character development here that he's putting, you know, the woman <laughs> that Blake shouldn't be with in a rival team's jersey of the city. Well, I, I think in. you might be reading way too deep into this one. I, I don't know. I think that it was a, a brilliant choice on DeBello's to kind of have Kathy <laughs> skirt the lines of being a villain by wearing the um, opposing city's rival jersey. I, I don't know. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's certainly an element of, of, you know, I, I, again, I have to go back. I don't know if, if he was confused as to exactly where he wanted to take yes. the, the two leading ladies because, you know, she sort of has those moments and then, you know, sort of comes across as the kind of wife just in the background, but is like, you know, giving the kids beer as she gets addicted to it too, you know, only to have that sort of, swing halfway through the movie where she's a, a confidant and, and helping Blake, you know, get out of this moral bind he's found himself in now. Yeah. Again, a tale of two movies to some degree of, you know, what direction were they going to go? Um, we see early on when Blake is in his new office, he does have a Broncos pennant up on his wall. So just to throw that out oh, there. Oh, I but, missed that. So to have the wife wearing the Seahawks jersey. So again, you know, I think definitely a, a choice there, a conscious choice by DeBellos to, um, to put her in that, but then it never really got fully visited. Only if it was, you know, oh, this is the yin to the yang here for for Blake Teagarden. He married the wrong woman. He should have been with Meredith. But then they don't explore that later. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's what I kept expecting to happen. Right. Uh, okay. So I love the scene, Rob, where Mister X walks up to this super long line at Marshall's Brewery. Everyone's drinking Marshall beer, and so they have to hire. And so we first we hear on the radio, we we. We see the visual, and it's this long line outside of the brewery, and they're waiting to, to get in to fill out an application for jobs at the brewery. Uh, and we hear this local radio station announcing this, and it's they say, this public service announcement brought to you by Q103, which it's I love it. It's like they call it a public service announcement. So like even you know everyone's so addicted to the beer that it's like, hey, go get a job <laughs> at the local brewery, and they call it not an advertisement but a public service announcement. So that's great. And um, Mr. X is trying to get into the building and he's stopped by security and told to go to the back of the line. And we kind of just, we, we start to get a feel for how he operates in this smooth fashion. He walks a bit uh, past everyone, then he stops and he kind of accosts this old man saying, are you referring to me? Did you call me a fudwomper? And the old guy has no idea what's happening. And then, and then uh, Mr. X says, uh, the old man says, you know, well, I didn't say that anything to you. And he says, then apologize to this man. And he, and he points to the guy standing next to, to him. And it leads to then a, br- two br- a big brouhaha because the two guys, he's like, he turns and he's like, what did you say to me? And uh, in the ensuing chaos, Mr. X slips right by the security uh, and into the building. And again, it's one of those over-the-top kind of moments that you were talking about that you enjoyed earlier. Like people are fisticuffs. People are being thrown through windows. Um, I love this scene. Well, and I'm assuming you um, got the callback later yes, on. Yes, I was going to ask you. The two security guards. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Are those two men. Yes. Um, and I know I, I don't know if you caught that the um, when he says, then apologize to this guy, it's, it's this big guy in an Arby's hat. So, again, more inexplicable product placement in this movie with Arby's. I mean, I just... I, I didn't even notice it was an Arby's hat. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll come back to that again because there's even more. So 
All right. In the early acts of uh, or early parts of Act Two, we we see, as you mentioned, society just totally breaking down. Um, Mr. Marshall's assistant tells him, you know, 82% of Americans are regularly drinking beer now. The drinking age was just lowered to six. Um, so we're about, oh, I don't know, 40% into the film here. And we're starting to, to really get the semblance of the plot here. Uh, Mr. Marshall is sending crummy Fred and and his assistant, uh, Misty, Tony Catan, and Hancock... Uh, to recover the vial from Lakeside. So we've got this kind of trio of kind of bumbling idiots, if you will, um, heading down to San Diego is where is where Lakeside is located. Uh, well, to, to, not only not only bumbling idiots, but um, imminently prone to violence. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, at, at one point, uh, yeah, Tony Katan, you learn, is a gun nut, and she's uh, pulling out guns left and right. So, um, And then you've got Mr. X trying to steal the other vial of formula from Marshall Industries. And then all the while, Blake's having this huge existential crisis about turning the formula over to Marshall Industries in the first place instead of using it for what it was intended for to help feed the world. So, um, you know, there's these great montages that you had mentioned throughout the movie where this the country's addiction uh, to beer just keeps getting worse. At one point, the teenage paper boy is like struggling to stay on his bike and breaking <laughs> windows as he's throwing papers through that, you know, at houses without looking and then stops to take a swig of beer. Um, I loved it too. And I wish there was more of this and kind of less of the yes. plotting points in the, in the main narrative. Um, you know, there's the subtle things like the, you know, the next morning, Blake comes into the kitchen um, Kathy has beer in the juice carafe on the counter, um, and the kids have beer in their cereal, and um, they're watching TV. And there's a kids show on, and it's the 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 soundbite that you heard at the uh, open of the show. The character on the show is named is a cowboy named Marshall Beer, <laughs> and there's it's like the Marlboro Man. Yeah, <laughs> and there's Rice Krispies on the counter. Rob, I mean, eighty percent of this yeah, movie's budget. Another one, yeah. Eighty percent of this movie's budget had to be go to just securing the the rights for their props, or they just ignored all the legalities and figured they'd ask for forgiveness after the fact, which I'm guessing is what happened. It wouldn't surprise me from the you know the maker of the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes right. if that's the path they took. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the fake ID montage. We have to talk about this scene for a moment. Um, you know, Blake finally agrees after seeing everything that's happened. He agrees to. Uh, at one point, Mr. X had approached Blake, uh, pretending to be from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and says, because <laughs> um, he's trying to use Blake to get the, the formula, um, Blake says, you know, oh, he. we find out later that he knows that he's not a Mormon because he drank coffee with him, uh, but they don't really address that, at the, why Blake still helped him out at the time. If, anyway, it, a little confusing for the narrative, but but he... he, he uh, basically joins up with Mr. X to get this uh, formula out of the building of Marshall Industries. And Blake leaves his ID on the roof of the building, and then Mr. X flies a radio-controlled helicopter over from the roof of the adjacent building and then duplicates the ID with his own photo and then flies Blake's original ID back over to the building, and all of this is done to you know a, a fast-paced edit, jazzed up with 80s you know, synth music, I mean, I'm sorry. I loved Rich Little in this, but him creating a fake ID, it was not exciting. I don't care what universe it's in, but it, now that I <laughs> now that we discussed the scene, it's funny that they tried to do it, and maybe again this was a parody thing where it's like, okay, we're gonna 
We're going to parody the montage here with making a fake ID. I don't know. What yeah, it's, take? it's like the um, trying to lean in, I think, to almost the James Bond nature of Mr. X. That that just involved and, and, having an, a, a you know printing machine that that yeah. helps you duplicate IDs, which you know corporate '80s America coming to coming into play here as well. So I guess there are so many deep levels here. This this I don't know the the National Registry of Congress might need to to preserve this film on its <laughs> national registry. I'm starting to think now that this is a lot deeper than we initially thought <laughs> okay so we are getting to the end of act two here uh, rob with a lot happening almost too much to keep track of you got crummy fred hancock and misty who end up in mexico because their pilot was drunk on marshall beer and overshot san diego um which i i have to say i loved the pilot yeah <laughs> his character was just just came out of nowhere was ridiculous had this you know stuffed gorilla (laughs) partner i just enjoyed every second of him um so uh, blake fakes his own kidnapping and travels to san diego and takes a tour of lakeside brewery in disguise in hopes to find meredith and to do what i'm not sure of yet um wasn't quite sure, but I did love the John Candy-esque security guard at the Lakeside Brewery. He reminded me so much of Lasky, the Wally World security guard uh, in in uh, National Lampoon's Vacation. What do you think of the of the big well, security I, guard? I got a kick out that when the second security guard arrived, I still thought it was the same security guard. That was another rewind moment for me too. I had to go back. <laughs> I wanted to make sure I didn't call, you know, him a her or her a him. I'm like, wait, yeah. I thought it was a guy, because he's chasing him down the stairs and he's like, stop, slow down, slow down, and then he's like, please slow down, and it just reminded me of John Candy delivery there. But then yes, the and next, I'm sure, I'm sure that's what they were going for. Right, right. Um, uh, <laughs> so there are the two security guards, and they're both rare, fairly large, very large people. So um, Blake and Meredith finally have their reunion and they confess kind of all their feelings that they were sharing of doubt betrayal remorse but they do it in the basement of the uh, lakeside industries and all of this is done all of this dialogue is is done to the backdrop of these two heavyset security guards that were chasing blake that were apparently really turned on by all the action and headed to the basement <laughs> to get it on so you know whether it well was- also what while hiding in the most obvious place possible. <laughs> One of those stairwells that, that have the empty slats that you can just see right through. <laughs> so they're, in a, in compre- in cl- oh, I can't speak, an incredibly well-lit area as right. well. So yeah. it's not even like they were in the shadows of the stairs. <laughs> just... I did like the you know the one really good thing this film did was ke- they kept Blake and Meredith apart kind of the slow burn of them getting back to 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 find each other and so they did it until this very moment but then in the ultimate slapstick way with their you know the reunion taking place with the sound overlay of just obnoxious sex taking place you know <laughs> yes. like just a few feet away from them so that was kind of an awkward scene to say the least Absolutely. I, yeah, it, it kind of, uh, you know, I admittedly chuckled a little bit, but it, it was uh, just a odd in general and, and seemed somewhat uh, out of place and out of character relative to, to the rest of the movie. But mm-hmm. yeah, just like I said, it was just a goofy movie in general. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so for some reason, we still have kind of three storylines going on. Blake heads back to Denver with Meredith. Mr. X is infiltrating Marshall Industries with his fake ID. And then crummy Fred, Hancock, and Misty are having this hilarious uh, you know, adventure to try to get out of... Um, Mexico, Mexico, and then they finally get to uh, San Diego and try to break into Lakeside Brewery. Um, this is where the callback that you mentioned earlier when Mr. X accesses the elevator with his fake ID and two security guards uh, come up, and it's the two guys that got into a fight. It's the Arby's guy and the old guy. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you really, yeah, you got to be paying attention, and there's so much to, to pay attention to in this movie that you might you might miss it. So, All right, we're reaching the climax of the film. The gang in San Diego blow up the lakeside vial. Uh, Mr. X gets the vial in Marshall Industries where he's met by Blake and Meredith and they make him a proposition to work together to find good use for the product. And uh, just as they're confronted by Mr. Marshall, uh, they kind of point out that his hands are tied because with the other vial at Lakeside destroyed, um, Marshall will be the one taking the blame for it, which technically he should because he's the one that hired that trio to go down (laughs) and destroy it. So, I mean... It's not like they're stretching the truth there. It's a bit of a convoluted story that then gets even weirder, Rob, when there's this big explosion at the top of the building. And um, when Meredith says, you know, boy, you really didn't have to take it that far. And Mr. X says, well, I did it for a favor for a special lady, which then we're met at the top of one of the other Marshall Industries <laughs> buildings. And it's a character we haven't even referenced yet, but it's her name is Miss Shepard. And she was Blake's bimbo secretary who just played. Think of a bimbo secretary and then put some steroids into her. Yeah. Yeah. Turn it up to 11. Yeah. That was her. Yeah. So she, uh, breaks the fourth wall, turns to the camera and tells us such a fitting climax to an esoteric fable of moral turpitude and conflicting social values. And so the bimbo act was just that an (laughs) act. And she too was trying to destroy the formula the whole time, I guess. I don't mean a feel good ending, but a really odd one. What'd you think of kind of the, the twist ending here. Well, yeah, it, it came really out of left field and, you know, I, I have to think it was just sort of for, for that effect only, you know, no one's going to see this coming. No one's going to expect it. So a little icing on the cake for a, for a comedy with an unexpectedly high body count. Thanks to Tony contain. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and a high number of social statements that were very, yeah, very yeah. much embedded deep, deep, deep into the film. Um, and then I guess also a little bit of a twist as we finally realize that no, Blake and Meredith will not be getting back together, but Meredith and Mr. X, who Rich Little, who also at one point spent the night with Miss Shepard. So he's just, you know, which again, Rich Little is this irresistible <laughs> yeah. man is just is uh, is kind of it's kind of funny here. But then Meredith and, and Mr. X kind of hit it off. So you now get the feeling that there's this this, you know, foursome. Kathy's helped out there along the way with, with Blake's plan. And so everybody's now, uh, you know, together and working now towards the greater good with this last vial that still exists uh to, to help feed the world so <laughs> yes to potentially uh, resolve it, world hunger it ends like it began you know a lot crammed into like about a 60 second period here to to wrap everything up in the in the film's falling action um all right rob let's check in and see what other people are saying about sour grapes 
Like, yes, please. Like last episode, there's no official tomato meter score for this film, unfortunately. And this time, we don't even have an average audience score. Not enough people have even weighed in on oh. this film. But we do have a couple reviews uh, from Rotten Tomatoes. So Sean W. gives it a star and a half and writes... The good times don't exactly roll in this flat comedy about an untraceable addictive food additive developed for Marshall Beer. Tawny Catan can't lift this material, although I did laugh at one scene where Jamie Farr takes out his traffic jam frustrations on a cyclist. <laughs> so, a little bit of a masochist there with Sean W. liking the, the, uh, the, the, the scenes of, of, of the violence of the film. And then Film Grinder S gives it three and a half stars and says, Mostly a one-joke movie, but I'll drink John DeBello's brand of comedy any day. Feeling thirsty? Drink Marshall's beer. So nice, nice review there. Um, okay, but Rob, this movie is available on Amazon Prime, where it has seventy-five ratings. How many stars do you think it got out of uh, Amazon's five-star review? Th that's where I watched it, so I had to in intentionally avoid seeing that. It ha uh, it has four out of five stars, with fifty-six percent of them five stars. Now, how, how do you ask? Well, there's a bit of an algorithm mix-up. So oh, no. there was also a Sour Grapes made in 1998, written and directed by Larry David and starring Steven Weber. So if you look at this movie on Prime, at one point it actually says 1998, even though it's the Sour Grapes from 1986. So somewhere oh. Amazon's got their wires crossed and kind of, all the everything's funneling into this one review most of the reviews are actually for the 1998 larry david film but i combed through them all for our listeners and there was <laughs> one four-star review for this sour grapes film from cindy in houston and she writes i actually have now owned at least three copies of this laugh fest one was a crappy avid home video vhs in the crappy SLP mode. The other was an IVE VHS in superior SP mode and had trailers for Free Ride and Meatballs 3 at the end. Both copies I bought from UFO Expert. In November, I bought a copy from none other than Ernst Whitman on Amazon under the name Video FLK and also known as Wiltvid on IMDb. It was a Canadian tape that, in my opinion, was superior to the first two. Now on to the movie, dot, dot, dot. I love that Cindy in Houston spends more time telling us how she got these movies <laughs> than about the actual movie. So she does summarize the plot, and she recommends it and gives props to the theme song from Devo. But I just loved her breakdown of even go, getting into the, you know, in, in, you know, remember old school VHSs where you had the slow play, the long play, and the, and the super long play. It's like those, you know, quote unquote reviews where they're like, it arrived broken, <laughs> right. zero stars. I hate you. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, great. Yeah, judging the movie by its crappy, uh, super long play mode that somebody recorded it in. Uh, all right, so it is time for our big finale, Rob, where we assess if the movie holds up. I'm going to ask you, is Sour Grapes worth staying up all night for? I think it is. I, I enjoyed my time with it because, again, I, I go back to. The my summation is it's just goofy. There's just so much going on. There are definitely moments that cracked me up. Um, 
I, and that I wish there'd been more of, like we, we had talked about that world building of the chaos that the everyone being addicted to Marshall beer caused. Uh, I would love to have seen more of that, but, but there was enough stuff going on that just was so, you know, the, the 17 different plot lines all happening, the, the unexpected, you know, shootouts and, and Tawny contains just willingness to kill everybody. Uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely give this one a thumbs up and, and I would stay up all night for it. Yeah, I'd say while it's not a slam dunk and it won't be for everyone, I think that the movie has enough charm and a big enough budget to warrant a yes. Uh, it is worth staying up all night for. The contrast of Rich Little as Mr. X and Jamie Farr as Crummy Fred, the two heavies for hire. I mean, that alone is worth the price of admission as they both play their roles to the hilt, as you mentioned earlier, just you know that they steal every scene that they're in. Um, and you know, there are some funny moments along the way, sometimes, you know, over the top, which kind of seems sometimes out of place, depending on which part of the film you're, you're watching. Yeah. But, but overall, I think it does have an endearing quality to it. The script could probably use some cleaning up for a smoother timeline and, you know, figuring out what the characters are actually, you know, what their motivations are throughout. But overall, it does think it holds up as an odd pairing of themes and actors and, you know, to stick with the drinking motif, uh, an odd pairing, if you will, right? Um, it it, yeah. does, it does have some things to say socially, and the final monologue by Miss Shepard seems like a jab from John <laughs> DeBello, you know, that comedies can have a message too. Or, again, maybe I'm just reading in, you know, too much into it, but uh, I don't know. I, I do know I'm thirsty, and I could go for a Marshall's beer right now myself. Oh, 100%. <laughs> uh, all right, so that's going to do it for now. Hey, it's October, and Rob is doing his annual 31 horror movies in 31 days so, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about this annual tradition, Rob. Oh, it's just something fun to do uh, during the, you know, October month of Halloween. You know, my wife and, and daughter are huge Halloween fans. And, and while they're not horror movie fans, that's kind of the world I live in. So I try and cram 31 horror movie, movies in over the month and just do sort of quick reviews of them and, and offer an opinion and, and try and do it in such a way to compare to, to other movies that are similar to, you know, potentially peak interest and see if it's, it's worth, you know, your own time. Um, yeah. So just quick, easy. And, uh, I have fun with it. You know, I try and do some deep dives into some lesser known things to, to generate interest in them. And yeah, you know, it's been, I think four years running now I've done it. There's a, a lot of horror films and, and, and from your favorite genre. So, you uh, have seen a lot of them. So really, let's, you know, if you've got a horror film to suggest and it's got to be a deep dive, uh, l let Rob know on, on social media. Rob, where can we find you personally on Twitter if somebody has a suggestion? Yeah, it's at RobKady1. So R-O-B-C-A-D-Y-1. The number one. Correct. Uh, Rob Katie won, and we want to thank uh, our friend of the show, Chad Smart, from the Positive Cynicism Podcast Network, who already made a suggestion, and I think you're going to take up. What was the film? It's called Pin. It's a, a Canadian thriller from the late 80s. Excellent. Nothing nothing beats a good Canadian thriller. So Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, and you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Still a Podcast, and we'll be back next month with a totally bodacious, but also perhaps socially conscious and slightly esoteric film from USA Up All Night.